You are listening to the Tour des Flâneurs, the cycling podcast at the 2021 Tour de France, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Well, happy rest day, everyone. My name is Richard Moore. I'm with Francois Thomaso. Hello, Francois. Hi there. And Kate Wagner. Hello, Kate. Hello. For the last time, Kate. I mean, we hope you'll join us again from time to time, but this is the end of your stint with the Cycling Podcast. We have to hand you over tomorrow. I'm devastated. No, no, seriously, I am devastated. <laughs> it's emotional. It's emotional. Well, we'll try and go out on a high. This is our press conference episode, now traditional, always good fun, and... Uh, We'll get straight into the questions because it always goes on too long. But have you had a restful rest day, Francois? Not really, because, you know, doing my... Well, I have two other jobs outside of the same podcast, where, you know, working for Le Figaro and doing the official book for the Tour de France. So, yeah, quite a bit of work, actually. Uh, but, well, you know, we know that rest days well, for, for riders, as for journalists, are sometimes some of the busiest days on the tour. Well, we had a delightful little lunch around the corner from where we're staying in the village here. Um, we're in friend of the podcast, Simon Loon's house, last night and tonight, and it's it's a real treat to be here. Kate, have you had a restful rest day? Absolutely not. I uh, had, like, interviews back-to-back from noon to now. You spoke with Matty Moritz for an hour and a half about... No, it wasn't an hour. It was more like an hour. About traffic calming. About traffic calming, yeah. <laughs> and uh, what books he was reading... And uh, about Taddy Pagacha and about being junior world champion, all kinds of interesting stuff. Great. Didn't know he was junior world champion. Oh, he's not junior world champion anymore. <laughs> uh, I went down to Yuma Visma and interviewed Wat Van Aert, um, Jonas Vingegaard and uh, Grisha Neerman, the sports director there. We'll hear a bit from Van Aert a bit later on what he is planning, what he thinks uh, will happen in the sprints and some interesting comments to make about that. Let's get straight into the questions, though. Hi guys, Ken Rogers, a friend of the podcast from New York. Uh, my question is, after seeing the rider protest during stage four, it had me thinking back to some previous protests we've seen by riders in the past. Whether it's for dangerous finishes, dangerous descents, improperly cleared roads during races, or organizers wanting races to go on in severe weather, it seems the rider protests never amount to anything. They have their moment, but once the race is back on, that's all that's talked about, and the protest becomes a mere footnote. Do you ever see this changing, and will the riders ever be able to truly influence the organizers? I have to point out the Tour of Poland because it's fresh in everyone's mind, and because of the horrific injuries sustained by Fabio Jakobsen. It's a finish repeatedly used, and if I remember correctly, was advertised as one of the fastest finishes in cycling. Combine that with the organizers' use of improper barriers, and it's a recipe for exactly what we got. Will the riders ever truly unite to force a change in these kinds of things, or will we have to go through more of the same year after year? Thanks, guys. Keep up the great work. Thanks for your question, Ken. Rider protests. It seems a long time ago, doesn't it, the rider protests? And I guess that almost answers the question that the the tour, um, we move on so quickly that already um, I struggle to even remember. It was it was organised by Andre Greipel. There was a brief stop, um, but it, it didn't... Uh, they're at the mercy as well of what else is happening in the race and there were lots of storylines being produced in the first week of the tour so we, we've moved on already pretty much from that debate but Kate I think you spoke to Moharic about this today I talked to actually Tom Squins about the protest specifically I just got off the phone with him actually like not even 30 minutes ago and so one of the things he was saying is that like it's really complicated because there are all these different conflicting interests. And so there's a lot of pressure on the riders to, if they want to demonstrate, to make it as unintrusive as possible. Because like he said, it's not the problem of the, the little town where stage four starts that stage three was a disaster. And so like, it becomes this question, like there are obviously like some riders who are more militant in, you know, in cycling, for example, like the riders who are really backing this uh, thing called the riders union, which is supposed to, which is a, a kind of like this, alternative union to the uh the cpa which is the kind of i won't say a sham union but it's the union set up by the governing body of cycling uh that really has kind of like no democratic structures in it and so when that when that happens when there isn't some like real union democracy like you'll end up seeing things like for example last year this can go over one of two ways the first way is that 
basically nothing ever changes, nothing ever gets done, et cetera. And, you know, we kind of are seeing that now as things have sort of stagnated. But the alternative is what we saw last year, for example, like in the Jira, where there was a sit-down strike, which is a pretty militant thing to do, uh, basically ruined that Jira stage for a lot of people uh, who are really influential and have a lot of money. And I think that that probably spoke louder than like this little symbolic protest. And so like, yeah, change is coming and it's probably coming faster than it would have without these these writer protests, because like even any kind of direct action is better than nothing, uh, which is basically kind of like what Tom said to me today. Uh, it's it's an interesting question. And, you know, the writers all have their own theories about like what to do, uh, how to make things safer. I talked to that's what I talked to Mahorich about today so yeah it's there there's lots of talk happening about it but i don't think that they're useless just before we go on to the next question um uh, guys and gal guy and gal um from which is from gary bandy um just had a message from tim declart which has put my mind at rest because i've been feeling a bit low all day since being out on my bike this morning i rode up to teen and i was uh i was pretty pretty dispirited when i came back because i set out with you know lofty ambitions to yeah, recorded a, a respectable Strava time. I was riding up the climb with uh, Tom Kerry of The Telegraph when they couldn't quick step, all of them, including Mark Cavendish, went past me like I was stood still. Now you would expect that, of course, but the ease with which they went past was incredible. Kaspar Askren was holding on to Michael Morkov's saddle and not pedaling, and Morkov was just twiddling past me. Apparently, they were on electric bikes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that does sound like it's believable. They were filming something, so it might have been some kind of promotional thing. But anyway, I feel much happier now. Let's hear the next question. Hi, Richard, Kate and Francois. I'm Gary Bandy. I'm a friend of the podcast and I live in the Peak District in England. I've enjoyed the coverage of the tour so far and wanted to ask your thoughts on something that Rob Hatch said during the Stage 9 commentary today. He said that he thought these first nine races of this is tour was the best sequence of nine races of all time. Perhaps it's a bit unfair to ask you to judge them of all time. So let's add a constraint. Is this the best sequence of nine races since the podcast began in 2013? And if it's not, what is the best sequence of races since the podcast began in 2013? Looking forward to hearing your views and also hoping that the next 12 races live up to the nine we've had so far. Thanks for the question, Gary. We heard Rob Hatch say that, didn't we? And I said it was the, 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 the greatest exaggeration I'd ever heard in my life, uh, which was a joke. I mean, it, there, there is a case to be made, but it's a bit too soon. I think you need a bit of distance before you can make statements like that. And also, the first nine days of the tour, and I'm not criticising Rob, by the way, Rob, if you're listening, um, at all, of course, um, but... The first, what's the point in the first nine days of the tour being exciting in a way? Because what we'll talk about at the end of the tour is the whole race. It'll be meaningless if the first nine days were really exciting and the, the, the next half was not exciting at all. Um, we hope that's not the case. But it's a good question about um, what has been the most exciting period of racing since the podcast started. I don't know. I mean, Francois, you've been covering the sport much longer. What, what for you stands out as the most exciting period of racing very difficult to say i i, I must admit i i i'd go along with uh, rob hatch a little bit i mean of course it's it's uh, grossly exaggerated and you, we tend to forget you know where uh, from one year to the other how exciting or how boring the race was and we keep in mind a couple of images but really they, they start in britain maybe not the first nine days but the first uh, five or six days were really a sequence. I mean, the the the, the jersey went to Alaphilippe, Van der Van der Poel, then in the mountains, Pogacar took well took over already in the time trial, and then, I mean, there, there was there was variety, and I think that for once. Uh, they, they always say, uh, you know, the organizers make the course and the uh, the riders make the race. But but for once, the, the two coincided, and it, it really was uh, probably the best reason for that is you had you had little well more than little climbs. You you had really really little classics every day in the first week, uh, with 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 like Mur de Huit type type of, of finish. So obviously. Guys were excited to 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 win those races. You had the the problem in in, in Grand Depart uh, very often, and I know it. it you know, it, in a way, it touches on the subject of the crashes. But 
if you have a time trial, a, prolo a prologue or a time trial or a team time trial, which happens very often in the first week, and usually that that kind of you know uh, fixes the, the 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 hierarchy for 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 quite 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 a while. The, 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 these these first stages in Britain they really made for an exciting start, and and uh, and and I, well, and I think as I said, for once the course, the riders, um, probably the weather, and also the the, the excitement that all, always goes with the first week of the tour. That the the riders are in great shape, all of them. You have in the same bunch climbers. Punchers, sprinters, GC riders, and all all kind of different types of riders, all riding you know as fast as they can, um, and and it, you know it, it makes well that's one of the reasons for the crashes, but it's, all, it's also one of the reasons for the excitement you you get, and and to be honest, yeah, uh, even the time trial in. Um, changer when when it comes like this uh, in the fifth you know in fifth or sixth stage that does not alter the excitement too much because I mean we saw Mathieu van der Poel fight for, to, for you know for keeping the uh, the yellow jersey as we said on the podcast and I, I say it again the, the really the first four days were, were, were like the ideal script written by Christian Prudhomme before when he he designed the course so yeah. Gr gr Whatever there might have been, most more exciting moments in in the history of cycling, but uh, I can't remember uh, the grand uh, part of the tour as exciting as this, well for a long time. Or <laughs> yeah, there were in the past a couple of like Pedro Delgado, you know, missing the stars of a of, of a prologue, or you know, the, the sort of or a breakaway, uh, you know, uh, of ten guys who stayed in the in the front of the GC for 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 a long time, but. You know, such a variety of uh, different kinds of excitement from really, really mini classics, an exciting time trial, and then in the mountains with the rain and the conditions. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was all there, you know. Nomination for me for the 2018 Giro. Uh, you know, fascinating race. Simon Yates uh, contributed a lot to it before his, his eventual collapse. Um, but that that kind of had it all. That, that's been a highlight for me, I guess, in in covering these races for the podcast. And you had a suggestion as well, Kate. Yeah, I mean, for me, I definitely think it was the last stage of the tour 2020, which probably greatest of all time, time trial. Uh, to actually, actually, the penultimate stage. Oh, penultimate stage, you're right. No, and then the world's 2020, which was like, I think one of the greatest races of all time uh, that I've seen in my time watching cycling and then Liège and then, yeah, I mean, and then the Welta, it was just like, that was such an incredible period. Cause it was like all so close. Like you didn't have these spacings out of weeks because they just had to cram an entire season into such a small amount of time. And so the excitement was just like kind of permanent. Uh, it was great. Oh, and the Giro was, yeah, oh, it was so good. You were just watching cycling, like, cause the Welta and the Giro were on at the same time. You're watching cycling like 10 hours a day. It was the best ever. The cycling podcast at the 2021 Tour de France, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insight, and personalized analytics. We are here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much indeed to Super Sapiens, our title sponsor. A reminder that we're running a competition in conjunction with Super Sapiens to win three months of the biosensors that you wear on your upper arm to monitor your blood glucose levels. If you'd like to have a chance of winning and maybe even hearing yourself on the podcast, send us an audio file with, uh, of less than 60 seconds telling us how and why you would use Super Sapiens. Uh, you'll see how to enter at thecyclingpodcast.com. Next question, please. Hi, Richard, Francois and Kate. It's Tilda here from ever sunny England. Um, my question is, in essence, what is going on with the French pro-continental teams at this race? It seems like they've hardly even fulfilled their first week expectations of getting up the road, getting in breaks and even chasing um, a jersey or two. But why is this? Is it because they just can't meet the pace that the World Tour teams are setting? Or is it actually 
the opposite in that they're too good because they want to get riders up on GC and in sprint finishes. And so chasing these early doomed breaks is just not in their interest anymore. Um, I'd love to know what you think and what impression you're getting from the ground as to why this is happening and what it might mean for these teams in the future. Thanks, as always, for all the coverage. Merci, au revoir. Well, that's an excellent question, Tilda. Um, And we know Tilda Price. She wrote some uh, fantastic interviews for us with some of our presenters for our website. You'll find them there. Uh, And it's it's a great question. Francois, do you have any answers? Because they're normally filling up the brakes and, and very visible, um, you know, is a factor that the the point that you just made about the, the difficulty of the first week. Yeah, I, I think the, the the course once again with, with the with the variety of the the, the fact that you had the mini classics uh, uh, almost every day meant that there were, there wasn't room for a real break. You know, uh, I mean, w- w- which team would send someone you know up up the road? Uh, you know, the, 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 apart from the the one to Vierzon uh, Le Creusot, which which was the longest stage for twenty more than twenty years, the others were quite dense, and and everybody want, wanted to be well placed at the bottom of the climbs to uh, to go for victory. So, and you also have in, in these teams, as you said. Uh, you, you, you've got guys with with uh, personal goals and real goals, like uh, take uh, Total Energy. They, they had uh, Pierre Latour was up there. He was he was uh, maybe not a contender, but a guy who, who might expect to do well in Mur de Bretagne in, in, in these kind of climbs. So he, and he was there until he until he, he failed and faltered in the in the mountains. So so maybe the, the goal was not for them to 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 just just show the jersey as they used to say during the uh, the first hours of the race S- same goes for bnb hotels they've got a, this young guy frank bonamour who was up there with the best in the mountains we, we, we might have expected uh pierre roland to be to to do that you know more than than he did but there you are you've got guys you know uh, well almost up front in in the mountains or in in the gc and i think the the the, the and akia samsic is the other one now they have nairo quintana in the in the polka dot jersey so so re- and I, Nasser I, Buhani, you know, yeah, going, Nasser Buhani, going yeah, the, yeah, we could have won a sprint. So these guys, I mean, if you ask uh, uh, Emmanuel Hubert the, the, or Jean-René Bernardo and uh, Jérôme Pinot, the leader, uh, the, the, the managers of these the, the, those teams, I mean, they, 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 what they want, I mean, their main goal is to make the grid up to the world tour and then you don't do that by sending a guy for an hour or two hours or three hours uh, up front knowing that he'll get caught at the end of the day you, you do that by trying to uh, improve your, your ratings I mean so, so, some <laughs> French I, I know a French uh, world tour team that doesn't you know that doesn't do any better than the pro Continental, and uh, it's, it's, it's still a world tour. Uh, I mean, AG Tour La Mondiale were uh, Citroën now. Uh, before Ben O'Connor, you know, in emphatic win, were not doing great either. Um, so yeah, I, I think, uh, as you say, I think that there's a real. Will it be possible in a world tour to have uh, to have five or six French teams? I, I, I doubt it, it, it'll happen. But I mean, the the, the, the spots that, that might be available, these teams really want it. On to the next question or questions. We're going to take two now from Graham Ritchie and David Wilson. Good evening, Richard, Kate and Francois. It's Graham from Bishop Briggs, very best friend of the podcast. Firstly, to the three of you, great first week podcasting. I was a bit sceptical at first with Don Lionel, but Kate, you have done an amazing job and I hope we hear you as a regular on the podcast. Similarly, I look forward to Lionel joining for this week. My question's quite a simple one. After a very, very intense weekend of racing, Pudgecar's taking quite a big lead and he looks way ahead of everyone else. It's been it's probably been everyone's mind at the moment, so I just wanted to ask a question your thoughts of, is it too good to be true or is it simply a case of 2014 all over again when his rivals fell by the wayside, whether it be illness or injury? Thanks. Keep up the good work. Hi guys, David here, friend of the podcast, calling from London. While there has been widespread acknowledgement that racing in the early parts of the tour has been more exciting than ever, it has been punctuated by some pretty incredible and slightly unbelievable performances which harken back to the type of riding seen perhaps 20 or 30 years ago. Not to name names, of course. My question for you is what the reaction to this is within the tour bubble, amongst riders, journalists, and the ASO, 
Is there some trepidation that we could be re-entering a dark age where the sport's credibility may once again be questioned, or am I viewing this in too pessimistic a light? Well, we touched on this in last night's episode, didn't we? Francois, you said that Pogacar's greatest opponent now will be suspicion. Um, he gave a press conference today. Kate, you listened into the press conference. Much has been made of the fact that he, his answer to the doping question um, and whether people can believe in his performances was along the lines of, I've never tested positive, which as an answer is one that Lance Armstrong used to give. And this is often wheeled out um, as, uh, uh, you know, not evidence of wrongdoing, but a not, not a satisfactory answer. Um, you were there for the the press conference. You know how did he how did he respond to that question? Because one of the curiosities with this is that he's a Tour de France winner, but given that he took the jersey last year on the penultimate day, and that the press conference last year was all about the circumstances around that extraordinary day at La Planche de Belfi, he wasn't subjected to the questions that riders as Roglic was last year are always subjected to now when they're in the yellow jersey, which are about credibility. Yeah, it's an interesting question because I think part of it was part of it. Part of the reason why people are so upset about this answer has nothing actually to do with Pagacha giving the answer. It has to do with the fact that the questions for the press, the press conference was only 12 minutes long, first of all, which is absurd. Uh, and second of all, the questions were pre-screened ahead of time. So like there were journalists like T. Zonewald who asked questions like, why would you join a team with, you know, Mario Giannetti and like Machin? Or why have you ever, do you have a, like a, you know, a personal use exemption? Like, do you, have you ever taken a, a banned substance? Like, uh, what would you say? You know, like real interrogative questions were passed over with like very specific answers as to like, why would you, you know, the question, why would you choose to be on this team with these guys who have a history of doping is a very important question. And like when those questions just don't get asked and the, and the only question you get asked is a softball question from Lakeep, where it's just like, how would you respond to suspicion? You know, like that's a really open question. And Pagacha for all of his, you know, prowess or whatever is still just a kid and like I don't think he understands like the loaded history of saying I've never tested positive I think that like he answered badly I think there's a million other things he could have said that would have been you know probably better but nothing I think would have assaged any kind of real interrogation because there just wasn't one I mean I made this point repeatedly in the sky years uh, with Froome where they kept coming to the Tour de France seemingly unprepared for these questions, which seemed to me like a real dereliction of responsibility. If you come to the Tour de France with a, a contender to win, then you know the, the job of the team is to prepare the rider for the questions, not to prepare him in the sense of giving him the answers, but to impress upon him the importance of answering those questions well. And they didn't do that. They didn't do that. So, you know, yeah, I mean, the problem when, certainly when questions are screened and, and denied, that the the suggestion is, or the suspicion is that there's something to hide. We I mean, There's no evidence that Pogacar has done anything wrong here, but it comes with the territory of leading the Tour de France and riding in the way that he's been riding, that that suspicion is inevitable. Yeah, we're in the age. I mean, I, I said most of what I had to say about it in the in the in the last two podcasts, but uh, episodes of, of the podcast. But uh, today, it's, it's something as you said that comes with the job. I mean, if you're a politician these days, you, you you'd better for the time of your term. If you have a mistress, well, you know, tell her, well, I'll see you in five years' time or something, because you you'll be in trouble. Whatever. I mean, Been following the, British politics, there, <laughs> Francois. <laughs> but and 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 it actually, I mean, it's unfortunate. We're, we're in the age of instant information we're in the age of twitter we're in the age of uh you know uh, gopros live cameras f phones with with the uh, videos on them i mean you 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 you've been scrutinized all the time if you're a pro rider and especially if you're in the in the, the tour de france so as you say part of the the the, the job now is answering doping questions the, the, the same as part of being a politician goes with uh, answering corruption or bribery or 
or you know, or uh, out of you know, off marriage sex. Uh, you you have really have to be prepared to it. And to be honest, the UCI, uh, I know, uh, are running courses for many media training courses uh, for DSs and sometimes for for writers uh, to try and be at ease with the press and to the the, the problem with 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 this, you know, with a writer uh, the age of um, of today, it's is. You like the spontaneity of sometimes of the writer, and and we go, we're going probably to lose that uh, pretty pretty quickly. And I wouldn't wouldn't be surprised if in the years to come, uh, well, today learns what we call in French la langue de bois, which is uh, you know the, the well the bullshit. Let's face it, and and uh, and answers always the same way as Armstrong yeah. used to do or others. And it's, it's interesting you mentioned UCI education because I went to the uh, the UCI's uh, sort of conference that they do for under 23 and junior riders in Harrogate in 2019 and they were given various presentations, Remco Avenepoel was there, Cecilia Ludwig was there um, they, they both spoke very well actually but there was a presentation about how to um, deal with the media for, for these riders, some of whom are you know pros already and on the doping question they were told to not answer it by the UCI it was mind blowing um, but <laughs> Yeah, uh, my mind was well and truly blown and I'm, I was kind of speechless about it and I still am because their job is also to restore credibility for their sport, for themselves first, but also for their sport. And that's the position Tadej Pogacar is, is in now. He is, uh, he's got a responsibility and I don't like performance-based suspicion. The whole point of his life in cycling is to produce the performances that he's done. He's done what he set out to do and the response to that shouldn't automatically be suspicion because he's just doing what he's, uh, you know, trying to do. The point about is it a repeat of the 2014 tour is a good one because it's kind of impossible to know. But when you look at his opponents here now, you know, I spoke to Jonas Vingegaard today. He is fourth overall, but he is not fighting for the win. You know, the guy in fourth on the first rest, he should be fighting for the win, but he's not. Um the rivals who should, who could have been here, Bernal's not here, Roglic is out of the race. Um, they're not, you know, Garrett Thomas crashed. They're either injured or they're not here. So there is a, a, a below par opposition for Bogacar at the moment. Um, and that's putting yet more gloss on what are already extremely glossy performances. Hi, Richard, Francois and Kate. It's Louise from Queensland where my routine is currently falling asleep to the Tour de France of an evening, waking up and watching the highlights in the morning and then spending the rest of the day listening to your dissection of the stage on the podcast. I'm really enjoying Kate's uh, addition to the podcast and what she has to offer and I would like to ask her what her opinion is of Lachlan Morton's alt tour. For someone who's much less of a wordsmith than Kate is, I think it's just mental, but I imagine she will be able to come up with something a lot more poetic than I can about the amount of suffering and mental fortitude that it must take to do an achievement like that. Thanks, Louise. Well, give us some poetry, Kate. Um, a haiku, anything, anything at all. I feel kind of put on the spot here, I have to admit. Uh, well, it's fascinating to me because cycling, for all its uh, you know intents and purposes, is a team sport. And for these guys to get over these mountains, to climb up to teen, to to accomplish things like a sprint train, all of these feats, these are all collective feats. Uh, teams, you know, individuals win them, but almost entire armies, caravans of people are behind those results. And so the idea of taking the Tour de France on as a solo mission is really kind of not antithetical to the sport, but it just casts the sport in a completely different light. And the light that it casts it in is this kind of very poetic and literary man versus himself versus nature. I mean, it becomes very much man against the world and man against his own endurance. And so what's fascinating about, about Lachlan is that, you know, I see like the tweets and the social media posts and he's just like eating like ketchup packets and stuff basically really rough he's really roughing it or like in rock climbing you call it, he's dirt bagging it you know he's he's carrying basically his life on the bike and is just on this like he seems in pretty good spirits all things considered it's and that's really it's it's quite formidable and admirable and it it makes him 
look a little crazy, like kind of like, you know, your uncle who lives in a caravan or something. But at the same time, it really highlights the arduous, brutal nature of the sport when without all that team apparatus, without the massage, without the hotels, without the team buses, without the soigneurs, without teammates to give you food and drink and water, or team cars or anyone, just like how hard it is to actually just ride a bike across France. And I think that's, I think it's wonderful and whimsical and just like I've been having so much fun following it. Uncle Lachlan, I like it. That was very good. Um, yes, I, I, on on that subject, actually, uh, we had a diary entry late last night from Tim DeClerc of the Quick Quickstep, who told us a bit about his day shepherding Mark Cavendish through the, the day, through the stage, and the efforts they went to. He and Michael Morkov came up to the finish at teen with Cavendish, and it was very emotional. Uh, I mean, Cavendish was almost as emotional in teen as he had been winning his first stage the other day. Um, and it was it was really interesting to get the to hear about the strategy that had gone into that and the real team effort um, behind it. And we'll hear that in tomorrow's Kilometer Zero, actually, which will I think will be a Rider Diaries episode. Um, looking forward to hearing from Ben O'Connor in there too about his stage win and his ascent to second overall. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2021 Tour de France. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much indeed to our sponsor, Science and Sport. Very grateful indeed to them. Um, we are, of course, running a competition, Super Sunday competition um, with Science and Sport. You can win £80 worth of Science and Sport goodies each of the Sundays of the tour. Um, the winner of this week's competition is Stuart Raybould. Stuart Raybould. Um, he picked Ben O'Connor. Not many did, but Stuart did. So congratulations to you. Um, and uh, we'll be in touch to send you your, your prize. Entries for next Sunday's competition are now being taken to go to thecyclingpodcast.com. And I forgot to say, of course, if you want 25% off all your science and sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and enter the discount code SISCP25. Hi, Kate, Richard and Francois. It's Timo from Germany. I have two questions, both going in deep speculation territory. First, I wondered if without the crashes, the strong Ineos collective would be able to beat um, the individual Pogacar. And second one is about Pogacar and Bernal. For the future, it seems that they are the two strongest men in GC. If we assume that they are more or less equal in the climbs, Bernal will really struggle to win a Grand Tour against Pogacar because Pogacar is much better in time trials. So what could be the Ineos plan for the next years to win another Tour de France? Hi, Richard, Kate and Francois. Um, I have a quick question for you about the future. Uh, the reason I'm asking about the future is because even though I've been absolutely loving this Tour de France, um, I, I was initially very interested uh, and excited about, you know, thinking it was going to be very close. And now it looks like Pogacar has, you know, kind of just kicked, kicked everyone's in, everyone in the ass and uh, that's it now. Um, unless O'Connor maybe, you know, does something else amazing. But um, for next year, who do you think would be your top five contenders for the yellow jersey? So looking at like who has done an amazing job this time around, but also potentially thinking about an Evenepoel or someone else, a Bernal, who would come back into the yellow, you know, into France to fight for the yellow jersey. Um, so yeah, future, this is a question about the future and I'd be very interested to hear what you have to say about that. Thank you. Thanks, Timo, in Bel in Germany, I think, and Charlotte in Belgium. Um, obviously, with a mention of Remco Evenepoel in there, um, because I spoke to Grisha Neerman, the sports director at Jumbo Visma this afternoon, and asked him whether we were now in the Pogacar dynasty. He said, well, if you speak to people in Belgium, they'll say we're about to start the Evenepoel dynasty. So who knows? There's even, there's even that younger writer, his name I absolutely can't pronounce, who's a junior in Belgium, child, yeah. well, whatever. Well, Francois, I can help you out with the pronunciation of the young Belgian cyclist, or more accurately, Jan-Peter de Vlieger of Het Newsblad can help us out. Over to you, Jan-Peter. Kian Uitebroeks. Sorry, what was that? Kian Uitebroeks. Thanks very much, Jan-Peter de Vlieger. Uh, and and he's, he's, he's apparently announced as being as strong as Evenepoel and maybe even more so. Um, what, what I can say about it is, is yeah, it, it looks like uh, we're in for a long, long 
period of domination by by today. But we, we were thinking the same about Nairo Quintana only ten, you know, not so long ago, uh, and and some other guys. And it seems the lifespan of of, of a GC um, rider these days is getting shorter and shorter. So uh, I, I was also talking to uh, Yvon Madio, the uh, Group of FDJ. Uh, Um, director sportif uh, at the beginning of the tour and he was telling me that you know the, the, the French teams have started really trying to spot and scout and, and launch as, as, as soon as they can young riders uh, you know at the highest level and, and, and he told me as well that you know now from the age of 15 or 16 they, they find young riders who are already pros in many ways so who knows whether you know the, the, the guy who is going to win the tour Uh, in five years' time or in four years' time, is uh, you know he's only 16 today. Um, it's very difficult to say. We, we've had so so many surprises. So um, yeah, may, may, maybe the guys who are going to challenge Bernal and Pogacar, are, we, we don't know their names yet, but they're they're up and coming. We'll see. Francois, you're enjoying a nice glass of uh, red wine there. Mm -hmm. That's actually part of our uh, cycling podcast collection put together by Divine Cellars. Are you, is it good? It is good. You're yes. always very measured in your praise. Um, so if it, if you say it's good, it must be really good. No, no I'm, I'm not. Uh, I think I can be enthusiastic uh, for many things, uh, <laughs> especially wine. It, I mean, no, but most of the wines we've had, we, you know, that the wine sellers, uh, or you know, offered uh, to for us to taste on the tour are are usually excellent. I mean, you know, excellent quality. Uh, this is a Saumur Champigny called uh, Domaine des Rochneuves, and it's it's a little bit. Stronger than than the Saumur Champigny you, you usually get. It's thirteen point five percent alcohol, um, and it, but it's, it's even better because uh, from time to time Saumur Champigny wines and some of the Touraine wines are a little bit too watery to my taste, and this is pretty good. So yeah, well done, good choice. Maybe have a glass of it with <laughs> dinner, um, and you can uh, you can buy the the second podcast Tour de France collection at divinecellars.com. Uh, go and check it out. Um, Just a couple of quick emails before we crack on with uh, the last couple of questions. Um, Dave Hodgson writes, growing up in the 70s, when I think of French Cooners, I think Sasha Distel. Any chance Francois can oblige? You can think about that for one day, Francois. Well, I, I nearly did, actually. Raindrops keep falling on my head. It would have been a song oh, we, yeah. could have, we could have picked for the rainy days. And Sacha Distel uh, sang the French version of it called Toute la pluie tombe sur moi. Well, maybe one day um, if we get more rain. Hi, hi, Cycling Podcast gang. This is from Stephen. Really enjoying the podcast during this year's tour. Thank you for your efforts. Um, my question for the press conference, assuming it's not too late, is for Kate. The potential for a building of the day was mentioned early on in the series, but alas, it wasn't to be. So can we have a building of the week? What stood out to you on week one, Kate, and why? Fascinating to hear your insight. You weren't too impressed by teen, were you? I didn't like teen. The castle of Oh, yeah, no, definitely. I definitely, yeah, that's a really good one. But also the chateau that we stayed in. Oh, yeah. That was that yeah. was fantastic because the best thing about that was that they had all of the architectural drawings on the wall where you can see details uh, and they're hand water watercolors. I mean, they're ink and watercolor uh, done the old school 19th century way. Uh, and it was a 19th century uh, chateau hmm? that was built in the French Renaissance style uh, because... That's what architecture does. It always cannibalizes itself over and over and over again. We build big mansions in the French Renaissance style in Houston, Texas. So <laughs> it lives on forever. But one of the things that's uh, about architecture that's really important is that architecture is an inherently spatial thing. And you don't really get a feel for a building or like an experience with a building unless you're there spatially, unless you are in the building feeling the scale of it around you, listening to the sounds, seeing how you are relative to everything else in the building, being within and around the grounds. I mean, nothing, no images on screen can compare to that. And so that's for me why this is, that was the building of the week because it was one I got to experience pretty much as intimately as one can, which is sleeping there. So, and it was good for that, I have to say. It was actually um, Chateau Le Boireno. If anybody wants to yeah, check it out. Busancé. Busancé. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Uh, yeah, it was lovely. Um, next question. 
Hi, Chris Buck here in Glasgow. Really enjoying the coverage this year. My question is around Roglic. Um, would his team and sponsors have been far better off if he had raced in uh, uh, throughout the season rather than putting all of his eggs in the Tour de France basket and, uh, and now having nothing to show for it? Thanks for your question, Chris, about Jumbo Visma and yeah, the huge gamble that really hasn't paid off. Um, withdrawing Roglic from racing for a couple of months before the tour, um, you know, and missing out on wins and publicity that would have probably happened had he ridden other races. But I spoke to Grisha Neerman earlier today, the sports director at Jumbo Visma, and I asked him that very question. You put an awful lot this year into preparing Primoz, withdrawing him from racing beforehand. That's that's a gamble. Um, unfortunately, hasn't paid off. But will, will that influence what you do next year? Not possibly, but I think it, it already influenced uh, the, the race. The, like teams came here, and, and, and us and, uh, and Ineos in particular, with bringing like multiple riders who could possibly threaten Pogacar. But, but the first week, uh, uh, when you look at that, played very well in, in, in Poggy's hands because uh, there are no uh, teams with multiple options left. Hi, it's Pete Reynolds here from Castlemaine, Australia. Podcast listener and friend since the beginning. My question is all to do with the Olympics. How do the race organizers and the teams feel about um, their stars or other riders prioritizing the Olympics over their commitments to the team or commitments to the, the kind of regular race calendar? In many cases, they're not actually going to gain anything from them because obviously only one person can win and no one really remembers who got silver or bronze. Second question is on the same, same theme, really. If I was a mountain biker, I'd be really cheesed off with all the cashed up road and um, cyclocross cyclists switching to try and gain, I guess, what they see as a cheap, a cheap Olympic medal. Thinking of Mathieu van der Poel, Tom Peacock, or previously Peter Sagan. How do you feel about road and cyclocross stars switching to mountain biking um, just to try and get a medal? Hi, Richard Francois and Case. Leo from Dublin here. Um, the recent abandonments by people like Matthew van der Poel targeting the Olympics and also speculation by ourselves that several riders may be effectively sandbagging in order to save themselves for the Olympics uh, makes me think, how significant is the Olympics for a professional in the male peloton? Like, I don't think you could ever say that like the best rider in the world has ever won the Olympics. Like, Where does it rank in like a cyclist palmares? Like, it's definitely not up there with a Grand Tour. Does it count as much as the monuments? I don't think so. One week stage race like Paris Nice or Tour of Romandy. What's your thoughts? Thanks. Thanks for your questions. Very similar questions, really, about the Olympics or linked anyway. Pete Reynolds and Leo Talbot. Francois, you've been doing a bit of digging into the Olympic Games. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, I'm afraid to say because you know professional riders went into the Olympics much well, very late in the history of the Olympics and very late in the history of cycling. Uh, actually, you know, well, for, for a ride for a professional rider, uh, the Olympics mean the same as for a professional soccer player. Uh, an Olympic title means, which is not much, uh, I'm afraid. And and there were, one of the questions was about prioritizing the, the, the Olympics compared to the Tour. Very few, if if any, rider uh, will do that for a very simple reason. Okay, Mathieu van der Poel did, and 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 he talked about it. And as far as I know, he's the only one rider to have pulled out of the Tour with the Olympics in mind for two reasons. One is all the riders I talked. To, uh, who are going to the Olympics say, and Mike Woods is one, say the best preparation for the, the, the Olympics is to go deep in the Tour de France. And the second answer to that is I, talked, I had a long talk with uh, Thomas Vauclair, who is the uh, selector of the French team. And, um, and well, he's, he, he's actually going to the Tour, to the, the Olympics without Thibaut Pinot, he's injured without Romain Bardet. Uh, and we'll get back to it and without um, uh, Julien Alaphilippe. Uh, so for Julien Alaphilippe, who's world champion, who, who had ambitions in this Tour de France and who's now a father, you know, the Olympics, it's only every four years. It, it Maybe he will never have another chance to go to Olympics. For, for them, for, for them, it was secondary. Romain Bardet is a good uh, is a, is a good uh, example of what how the Olympics is seen by riders. He's not doing the tour and he's not going to the Olympics either. Why is that? Because his team DSM think he can be 
uh, one of the main contenders of the Vuelta and they think you can't be in top shape for the Olympics and in top shape in the third year of the Vuelta. And uh, Thomas Werkler told me, I understand that and I respect that. And you have to bear in mind that all these guys, the one, you know, the, 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 the who's paid, paying the bills, the, 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 the teams are. And the team, and the team have no interest whatsoever in the Olympics. They don't make money out of it. That's the, 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 their name is not on, on the jersey uh, at the Olympics. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, the financial, uh, uh, you know, uh, aspect of, of the question means that for, for the team, the, the Olympics cannot be a priority. And you know, as a result, it's not. It's very often not a priority for the riders themselves. As for Pete's point about the the mountain bike race offering a cheap uh, opportunity to medal, I don't think Peter Sagan would agree, and I don't think Matthew Van der Poel would agree either. I don't think he's by any means nailed on to win a, a medal or a, certainly a gold medal. It's, it'd be very very tough for him to do that in you know lo- lots of ways. I mean. Far from resenting him dropping, I don't know. I haven't spoken to the top mountain bikers, but you know they've they've had far better preparation. And um, he and I spoke to him and people around his team over the winter about about this, about what he was attempting to achieve this year in terms of um, peaking so many times. Um, the the guy the mountain bike specialist who focusing Olympics will have one peak this year, and that'll be for the Olympic Games. Um, because it means more in a mountain biking context than in a road cycling context for all kinds of reasons. Um, so I don't think he's given himself the best chance of winning a gold medal. And, well, as for his opponents, they, they'll have to beat him on the day to win the gold medal. I don't think they would uh, complain if he was the better man on the day. Um, one rider who's not apparently going to be uh, pulling out the tour to prepare for the Olympics is Wout van Aert. One who is, is Vincenzo Nibali, I believe. Next weekend, um, he will probably withdraw. But Wout van Aert says he will um, carry on, and not least because he views that time trial on the penultimate day as a, a great um, dress rehearsal for the Olympic time trial, which is marginally ahead in, in his priorities in Tokyo. Um, but he's had some interesting things to say as well about his ambitions in the rest of this race, because with Roglic gone, um, he's a bit more freed up to uh, pursue those, uh, including in the sprints. And uh, well, he said some interesting things about the effects of the last couple of days on some of the other sprinters. What are your goals now then uh, in this race? I mean, you, you've fallen out of GC now after yesterday. You've got a rider, um, you know, highly placed. Does it become about supporting Jonas or um, do you have your own ambitions as well? Uh, yeah, well, both. I guess uh, even before the tour was already clear that, that at some point I uh, was uh, was allowed to chase my own uh, my own goals. And uh, yeah, even now we have uh, we have a really strong GC leader again. It's also uh, the, the the pressure of the race will never come on our shoulders. I guess so. We'll still have the the space to to go for stage wins as well. And uh, yeah, this is something. Uh, what I what I like to go for, and maybe as soon as tomorrow. I mean, are, are the stages coming up that you like the look of? Yeah, I think it's yeah quite easy stage tomorrow. But uh, a couple of days ago, I also tried to do the bunch sprint, and uh, it was actually nice to to give it a go again. There are fewer sprinters after yesterday, I suppose. That might change the the sprints a little bit. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, yeah, and all, even the sprinters who are still in, they they probably suffered. A bit more than than I did the last uh, the last weekend, so yeah, I believe that the second half of the tour, yeah, I have a bigger chance in the bunch sprint than than I had in the first part. And what for you, the Olympics are obviously on the horizon as well, and, and a big focus. I mean, yeah. you know, lots of discussion about what's the best way to prepare for the Olympics. In your view, is the best way to prepare for the Olympics to finish the tour or to not finish the tour? Yeah, for me, it's not even a question. I, I for sure I want to finish the tour, uh, especially because. Yeah, it's, it's it's one of the biggest races of the year, and also this is a big uh, big goal for me, especially this year with the TT the day before Paris. It's a uh, it's a last big chance to try everything out. Let's say I believe this is a good um, this is a good preparation, and uh, coming from the injury, I think it's uh, it's what I need to have just uh, three big weeks, and then hopefully with the right uh, amount of rest, uh, traveling as smooth as possible to uh, to Tokyo. Uh, I will be on top of my game there. Well, that was Wout van Aert speaking today. We may well see him have a go tomorrow. Um, we'll also see Lionel Burney tomorrow. 
I mean, we're looking forward to seeing Lionel, of course. It'll be great to have him with us out of the tour. Um, but it will be very sad to not have Kate with us. I'm so sad. No, really, I'm really sad. It's been wonderful. This has been like the best week of my life, traveling around with you guys, having great meals and staying in great hotels and talking to guys in the mix zone and getting my feet wet in the Tour de France for the first time. You guys made it really easy for me, actually. <laughs> way, uh, way easier than if I had to you know, go it alone. So, yeah, I owe you an immense amount, and I can't thank you enough. Well, we'll think about what you can you can owe us. Uh, well, no, it's been a great pleasure though having you, Kate. I mean, as Francois, I know you, you, you feel the same. It's been great fun, uh, fun. It's been fun, and and it's been really interesting as well to hear your perspective on on things. Really interesting to have such a fresh view of everything, and that's been it's been energizing, I would say. Well, Kate, we will be hearing from you again, of course, because you're. Tremendous audio diaries are still to be released as episodes of Kilometer Zero. We'll have another episode this week and then final episode next week. Um, I should say that we got loads and loads of questions for this episode and we have not been able to get to them all. A lot on the theme of doubt, suspicion, uh, some really good ones, and I'm sorry we haven't got to them all. We will be doing another press conference episode next week and we'll be doing that one with Mitch Docker who'll be joining us for the final week. I want to mention one in particular, Catherine Nesbitt, you sent in an excellent question and I thought it'd be a really interesting one to have Mitch answer about, well I'll not say what it is but I think he might have an interesting response to that. So well, I'd be interested to hear what he thinks. Um, so we'll move that into next week's episode if that's okay. And thanks everyone who sent in questions, we really appreciate it and the lovely comments as well and the emails, we've had loads of Really nice emails too, so much appreciated. Just before we go, we've had an entry from Ben O'Connor for his audio diary uh, following his stage win on stage nine. Um, that will feature in tomorrow's episode of Columbus Zero along with our other audio diarists, Tim DeClerc, Victor Campenart, and Connor Swift. But let's just hear a little flavor of Ben's audio diary here. Tour de France, stage nine, and I managed to win. It's uh, it's madness. It's a dream. It's invigorating. It's shocking. It's uh, it's a lot of words all put into one. Yeah, you've heard from me for the first couple of days. It was pretty rough, um, but never lose hope. And to win yesterday is yeah, is is, is madness. That's about it for tonight well that is it for tonight let's go and have dinner and uh, we will uh, reconvene tomorrow when the race reconvenes we'll be in Valence thank you very much Francois thanks and adieu Kate adieu thank you thank you